Hello everybody, welcome back to the BSF study on the Gospel of Matthew. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region, and today we are continuing in our two-part series on the look of chapter 13. We're on lesson 14, and we are studying the parables on the kingdom of heaven. What is the best way you remember and learn things? Isn't it interesting that we learn better when we hear stories or uh, watch movies or read books? Uh, when stories give us a visual representation of the things that we are learning, don't those stories help the principles to stick better, not only in our minds, but also in our hearts? Imagine what sermons or a BSF talk would be like if it was nothing more than a list of principles or a list of do's and don'ts, right? Stories are powerful ways in which principles are couched into scenarios and uh, word pictures to help them stick and rest in our minds and our hearts longer so that we can pull apart the associations and relationships of the various moving parts. And more importantly, as we understand what's going on in the stories, those elements and the rolling out of the story, the, the pr process and the, and the main themes of the stories end up touching our hearts and they, they stay in our minds and in our hearts longer for us to make application. So let me start off with a story that we may all be familiar with, the story of King David's sin in taking Uriah's wife Bathsheba as his own. You may remember that story where King David, when he sent all his soldiers off to war, uh, he actually took Bathsheba and committed adultery with her. When she became pregnant, he conspired to have her husband Uriah killed in battle by his enemy's sword. He then took Bathsheba shamelessly and made her his own wife. In all of these sins, he implicated not only his servants in retrieving Bathsheba, but he also involved his military generals in putting Uriah right out in, in the most vulnerable place where he could get killed. And then members of, of his own household were also implicated in bringing and escorting out Bathsheba from the palace. So they all knew about it. Everybody could see what was happening. Rumors would have spread throughout not only his palace, but also throughout the land, such that actions by the king declaring his devotion to God would have sounded quite hollow and false at, at about this time. So his pride and sinful actions really brought serious dishonor to the name of the Lord that he was ruling under. Yet somehow none of this would convict his heart until he was visited much later by the prophet Nathan. And Nathan doesn't come right out to accuse David. Uh, instead, he uses a, a, a story, a word picture, a parallel. And he tells him of a story of, of a grave injustice where a man who has great wealth and flocks of his own goes and steals the only little lamb that a poor man cherished to serve as food to a visitor who has come into his home. So David reacts angrily to the injustice in the story and condemns that person to death for his sin and lack of piety, or pity, I'm sorry, pity. When Nathan declares that evil man to be David himself, it not merely opens his eyes, but it sticks, it strikes at his heart. So parables are a really great way to get across a very difficult, difficult subject to the people who may not be listening and paying as much attention to what you're saying as you'd like them to. Parables are not new for us, but parables are simply stories that draw parallels to God's truth and teach us into the understanding of additional multi-layered truths 
that rest on the foundations of previous older truths that we had been given before. Parables are parallels, and in Psalm 78, the Bible teaches us that God has used historical events as parallels to teach us about himself and his work among his people. So God uses priestly ceremonial parallels, uh, so the practices of the priest within the temple, to teach us about the coming Messiah. God uses also everyday activities and historical events as parallels. For instance, the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites escape from Egypt as a parallel to describe for us the magnitude and the grandness of God's deliverance uh, when he provides the plan of salvation through his chosen Messiah, our Lord Jesus, on the cross. And so these parallels flesh out and give greater meaning and depth to what we may not accurately or entirely see uh, just by looking at the cross alone because there's far more things far more ramifications to what's going on than what we might see in one uh, event in time and place across uh, the multi-dimensions of things going on in the heavenly realms so short stories act as parallels to help us think about God's kingdom and warn us about the future parallels only makes sense if we desire to learn and make our hearts open to receiving God's word. So in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is now teaching through parables what he had taught before, that what people decide about himself, about Jesus himself and his life, will be the single most important point of divide and conflict for everybody who's listening to him and wishing to follow him or choosing to de deny him. So have you ever heard of a leader telling his earliest recruits and followers that he's going to be the single most volatile and controversial sticking point in their lives? It's usually not the best way to recruit people. But Jesus makes no hem-haw or excuses for who he is. Uh, whoever wants to be liked in society, well, they have no choice here. If they believe society is more of a priority, to be liked is more of a priority, uh, they, they cannot follow Jesus. Who wants to enter into a controversy or to be uh, persecuted, right? So uh, this is the sticking point that Jesus uh, lays out very clearly to his followers from the very get-go. What we determine and accept about Jesus will be the single most important distinguishing feature and factor that will matter to God at the end of the age before the great judgment throne of God. So it's not based on your good works, not based on your lineage or who your, your, uh, your associations are or who you know, your donations, your investments, your piety, or the good life that you try to live. None of that will matter at the judgment throne of God. The only distinguishing factor is this understanding and the complete confidence in God's heart as in Jesus Christ when he died for us as atonement for sin. And that great, uh, that singular understanding creates a great rift of comprehension that divides believers from non-believers. And it will lead to either growth or stagnation in the spirit. What we believe about Jesus changes our comprehension about everything else and this is at the crux of the parables in Matthew 13 that we look at. So the big idea for this week is this idea that big idea that consequences of faith and belief have indelible and huge consequences, right? So the consequences of faith and belief, what comes out of our faith and belief has indelible and huge consequences for what our lives will become, is what that's getting at. 
And what happens with this is that unbelief, therefore, is noticeably absent of spiritual power. Uh, if you don't believe, there really isn't a manifestation of God's work and God's fruit-bearing power in your life. So in this second part of the study of Matthew 13, we have two divisions. One is, the first is, uh, what it tells us about the kingdom growth, uh, about kingdom growth, verses 31 to 35. And the second division teaches us about kingdom worth, kingdom worth in verses 44 to 58. So many people are familiar with the mustard seed parable, but many do not know that Jesus uses the mustard seed to teach about the kingdom of God, that it's about the kingdom of God. The kingdom that God initiates doesn't require some large catalyst or impressive beginnings. As we know from the birth of Jesus, we know Jesus entered the world in humble beginnings to initiate a movement not by compulsion or force or swords or grandeur, but like dew that gathers in the morning. So Hosea, the prophet Hosea, uses this imagery in uh, chapter 14 verse 5 that God works within with us like dew that gathers in the morning, gently and subtly, subtly. But the message of the kingdom has profound effects, expanding in influence and impact above everything else and laying the foundation for nations to rest on its branches by. So mustard seeds, you know, also have a medicinal value, treating malaise, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, alleviating pain and helping with cold symptoms. Uh, the gospel message is in fact like this kind of a medicinal effect to the nations. It's a balm of Gilead, Jeremiah says, a salve and a healing from Israel to the nations. And yeast is often attributed in scripture with pride and rebellion in the ways in which it's like an infection, a contamination of the dough, which puffs up the dough and makes it bigger than what it really is. But in this case, in this parable, Jesus uses the rapid and thorough growth aspect of yeast to explain the kingdom's growth and expansion among his people. So this uh, growth uh, in the evangelical movement of the church has so permeated our lives. Once it is assimilated in, the dough, uh, going back to that analogy, is forever changed, right? It cannot be undone. So is the movement of God's kingdom in the world. As it grows into reaches and parts of the world that we don't even have direct influence over, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, is moving in and doing work that we're not even cognizant of, moving powerfully by His people in the far reaches of the world, transmitting the grace of God into the hearts and lives of God's people everywhere they are called. So it echoes John 1.5 where it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not understand it or overpower it. Matthew 10 has told, we looked in previous uh, lessons that Jesus already told us that he, was, he will stand as a pivotal point of ultimate decision for the world, the whole world. Do not suppose, he says, that I've come to bring peace to the world. I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. All men will hate you because of me, and he who stands to the end will be saved. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, the kingdom of God is worth more than anything I can currently own. All that brings me joy is not comparable to what God has to offer. Something happens such that all the baggage and the quantity of stuff that I've accumulated in this life uh, becomes more of a baggage to where I need to go than a help or a necessity. It becomes an obstacle. So, I know several people who have... Uh, at, 
had recently had adult parents pass away and uh, they say that it takes them years to sell off and get rid of their parents belongings um, because there's just a lot of hassle in distributing and selling and finding place for things that nobody wants uh, these all had sentimental value at one point but now they're old and out of date and meaningless to anybody who is outside the family and even the family members don't even want the old furniture and all the heirlooms they don't have room in their houses for it right and then they had to uh, also remodel their old house to get rid of it ready to sell and that took another couple of years long weekend trips driving up to over a hundred miles to the property where their parents lived you know, it reminded uh, my friends of this verse that said, What will a man gain if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And what will he give up for his soul? That person may get, we, you know, we as people can get so caught up in things that we may never get to a place of freedom to appreciate what God has to say and what God has to offer. He is the creator and master who has made us for himself. So we read carefully there in the parables that these people sold everything they had everything they had in order to buy into their discovery. So we read about in these parables the man who bought everything and sold everything he had because he discovered the treasure in the field or the man who sold everything he had to, in order to buy the pearl of great price. They could not hold anything back. What a message for us that really is to understand that our short-lived lives should be focused on the, that thing which is of great value, the most important value and that spiritual treasure can be found and is actually discoverable. It is not the thing, and it does not lie in the things of the world that we chase after, that the world says is important. Everybody knows, having lived that life, that that's not where the treasures are. And even those who would be in a position to regret their faith, uh, living in persecution in other countries where the faith is, uh, is very difficult to hold, you know, they turn to their faith and joy under suffering. Think about the persecuted in uh, places where uh, their faith is under attack. Think of those who have come out of an oppressive state or religion or face imprisonment, um, death threats, and yet continue to witness at great cost. Or those ostracized by their families and many who have been martyred for refusing to renounce their faith for Christ. Um, they may often wonder, is he worth it? Uh, but at the end of their doubts, they always find that indeed there is nothing more than they would have in their faith against all the things in the world. Our persecuted brothers in countries that are arrested, jailed, and tortured say, many fear suffering, but in the past, I too feared it. But they will also say, in the presence of the Lord in jail, nothing has given me more joy and happy experiences, and I would never exchange them for years of easy living and freedom. So these persecuted brothers and sisters inspire us because they do not ask us to pray for their persecution to cease as much as that they would ask that God would use these sufferings to further the cause of the gospel and increase their joy to many, many brethren who are also living in darkness. They ask us to pray for their persecutors as they do themselves. And despite the cost, they keep on sharing. Why do they continue in this way without forsaking their faith? Because they have experienced and have known Jesus is worth everything. They know his love. They're not bound to the chains of this world. Even if the bounds are chains in prison, their hearts and lives are sold out for the king. And consequently, they are more free than many of us in the developed world when we have so much 
possession and cares of this life that hold us down. So we move on to the parable of the good fish and the bad fish. Jesus concludes the parable said in this chapter, describes a separation, a separation that's going to take place when the fish are gathered in the net. What makes good fish and bad fish distinguishable? You know, I would think that it's based on what they were able to feed on. And in our lives, isn't it, isn't it true that, um, and isn't it taught throughout scriptures that we must consume God's word and assimilate his truth into our lives? That's when we are built up and nourished by it, right? We can't just hold it in our mouth or hold it in our hands as uh, we are want to do uh, religiously uh, and kind of by kind of perfunctorily by the ways in which we could just do it habitually. Uh, but that's not what the Spirit would have us do with His Word. A bad fish would eat the crud and garbage at the bottom of the lake, but the good fish is able to nourish on the things that matter. So I remember, you know, uh, many mothers telling their kids when we were young, you are what you eat, you are what you eat. And so it is with scriptures as well, as we indwell in the things that are precious to our nourishing our spirits in God, that God would have us nourish after himself on the very body and the blood of Christ and the very essence of his heart. You are what you eat and then you become what you love. So what do you love? What has your affections been drawn to so that you partake more of that than anything else and you know your priorities the first things that you do in the morning really are telling of where your priorities and your loves rely where they are based at what your priorities become follow the things that you love how has what you loved affected and changed you for better or worse so principle number one speaks about this Principle one is that you are what you think and you become what you love. In Psalms 1, the psalmist tell us more about what this means. He says, blessed or fortunate, prosperous and favored by God is the man who does not, or woman, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, following their advice and example, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit down to rest in the seat of scoffers and ridiculers. These people who just... Uh, discount and dismiss the things of God. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, his precepts and teachings, he habitually makes a priority, meditating on it day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted and fed by streams of water, which yields its fruit in the right seasons. Its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers and comes to maturity. The wicked, those who live in disobedience to God's law, are not so. They are like the chaff, worthless and without substance, which the wind blows and drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the presence of the Lord, in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And that's from the Amplified Bible, Psalms 1. So, this teaches us, as you can see, that we love and follow. What we love and follow alters and changes the kind of person that we become. And while that might not matter to anyone else in the world, it will be the singular most important factor that distinguishes us in the next, in the world to come, when the angels separate the two. So the greatest thing that separates all of humanity are not wealth and well-being or social class or our position in society. In the great historical parable of the Lord's Passover, when the Hebrews were rescued from Egypt, we learned that the only mark that the angels looked at in the final plague 
of the death of the firstborn was the blood of the lamb wiped over the crosses of the door doorpost in likewise manner the only thing that will differentiate believers from non-believers has nothing to do with us but has everything to do with the blood shed on the cross by our yeshua our messiah the anointed one the perfect lamb of god who washes away the sins of the world it is only by our faith and belief in his name that we are saved and made righteous by his atonement by his what we say propitiation or his uh, substitution of our what we needed to bear as a punishment for our sins that he took upon himself and died and bore on the cross and that transforms us as his people we are transformed by his spirit into his people and this is how it will be at the end of the age matthew 13 says 49 to 50 the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth so have you structured your thinking about end times and the present times along the ways in which god thinks the way god demarcates people how are you thinking about people in the world and your place in it you know economically we divide ourselves into haves and have-nots into blue and white color workers into the rich and poor, and into the empowered versus the marginalized. But that's not the way, primarily the way that God sees us. How the God sees us is the most important thing. And how does God, Jesus' teaching about that changes the way we live and think is critical to how we live out in our faith. There are only those who know him and those that do not know him. And how does that affect how you will start to see everything else in your world? So let's move on to Principle uh, number two. Principle number two says surrendering and submitting to Christ yields a priceless return. Surrendering and submitting to Christ, after we know that what we love changes us, we need to now surrender and submit to Christ as the ultimate thing that is of utmost importance in our faith walk in order to yield a priceless return. The kingdom of heaven costs surrender, self-surrender, and is a great disruption. You know, modern spirituality and people who want to get involved in religion want a little bit of religion, but don't want to sacrifice anything else in their life. They want everything and all the sinful ways in which they live into the world, but want some bit of religion too, to answer why they're alive. And so modern spirituality says you can have everything and have and create your own religion too, and it won't interfere with your lifestyle and what you want to do. It promises to give you balance and control under a false sense of peace but that's not what the bible says it's wanting to give you whenever a person comes in contact with god it's not balance and control that god gives them god throws them off kilter puts them off balance and comes crashing down on their lives the whole lives are disrupted we only see now you know, in this modern age of startups and startup craze that the word disruption has this positive connotation because what it is is that disruption dismantles and undermines the old ways of doing for better ways of doing things, right? In scriptures, it has always been an, an age-old idea that God comes and he dismantles our false ideas and false notions. He disrupts those wrong ideas and half-baked notions about what God wants to give us and what God seeks to do through us. We also see that disruptions are essential when we are uh, stubborn and unwilling to see and our hearts are callous and, and hardened 
and we become very uh, it becomes very difficult to understand disruptions are necessary so there's you know there's really nothing like a personal crisis to humble us and bring us to our knees and change our minds you know um, <laughs> I don't know if you've been sick recently but when your body is really really sick and you lose strength that's when you are at you are probably at your humblest right when you are dependent on others and uh, you moan and groan and you act yeah, you realize how weak you are and you beg others to help you in that time. You know, it's, it's sad that um, we have to be brought down to this level in order to see and understand what God wants to do and what has, he has to offer uh, to us. Like Jacob, who insisted on getting a blessing. He's been searching for a blessing his whole life, you know, as a, a person with an inferiority complex, as a second born. But God, as he was wrestling with Jacob, had to touch his hip and disjoint it to make him see his future was not in the hands of his brother. It had nothing to do with anybody else, not with Laban and all the people that he thought was out to get him, but his future lay entirely in God's hands. And he needed this disruption, this disjointing of his powerful ways in which he walked to and fro about the earth. He needed to be kind of brought down in a way as to be handicapped a bit to be able to see what God had to offer him as an inheritor for God's riches. We enter the kingdom through confession and repentance and humility, acknowledging God for what he wants to do in us above and beyond what we are imagining can come from the small God that we imagine in our hearts. We must recover the true image of God that he has said about himself much larger than what we we have been holding in our hearts by repenting of our rebellion to his rule by acknowledging that jesus is king and that you and i are not we must come confessionally to jesus as king of our lives and that means relinquishing our throne i acknowledge that in my life he must be lord and not me he calls the shots i belong to him i must sell everything i have as a means to give up myself in order to have what he wants to give me, which is a far greater value than anything I could conjure up for myself. I could dream or if I could even pursue for myself, right? So we, send, we surrender our lives. And it's an, it's an essential part of what a Christian walk with the Lord and a commitment to the Lord is like, it entails. And what does Jesus give in return? He gives to us true life. He gives, he gives to us eternal hope. He gives to us fulfillment that lasts. Psalms 107.9 says, For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Without Jesus, all the Old Testament is disjointed and strangely doesn't make any sense. But in Jesus, only in Jesus, however, as verse 52 says, the teachers of the law who understand the kingdom of heaven are ones who have an integrated and cohesive, unified understanding such that they are like the owners of a house who brings out new treasures as well as old, so it's to show their beauty in full to others. There are many things that can cause faithlessness, but the end of this chapter concludes with one which is one of the most disarming problems we have as humans, and that is familiarity. We can become so familiar with something, so chummy and accustomed to such a small view of Jesus that we cannot see beyond the cultural Christian emblems and notions that we have as children that we were brought up with, the culture Christianity all around us, and we can rest in those things and not look further. 
because there is a greater revelation of God that Jesus desires to show us. Because of their complacent, because of a, on our very complacent small ideas, small, tiny ideas about Jesus, the passage says Jesus did not do many miracles there. How is the lack of faith and small, stagnant religious ideas that you hold, that you might have, be holding on to about Jesus, preventing you from experiencing a vibrant relationship with God? What, are, what areas of doubt do you need to surrender to Him so He can knock you off your feet and show you how very great and marvelous God He truly is? What limiting thoughts or ideas do you have about God's work and His kingdom? Let's pray. Father, forgive me, Lord, for the limiting thoughts and ideas about you that I had grown up with, and they are small, small thoughts of you. Forgive me, Lord. Help me to acquire kingdom thinking in Christ that is far bigger than myself, relying on your truth of your word, and, and desiring as much as you desire out of me greater growth and expansion in the ways in which I live into your truth, Lord, and not uh, live into the world as the treasures that I hold dear to my heart. May you, Lord, be the treasure and the very great uh, reason for my life, my purpose, for my being. In all these things I commit to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.